Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can have the opportunity to make sure that you are experientially sanctified, that you are in fellowship, that uh, ready to focus, concentrate, Get rid of all that clutter of distractions about the 4th of July celebrations tomorrow and all those other fun things that are going on in life and focus on the Word. And uh, then I will open in prayer. So a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our fathers, our nation comes together tomorrow to celebrate its birthday, the remembrance of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. We would pray that this might be an opportunity where people will come to reflect upon just what the nature of liberty and freedom is all about. That liberty and freedom is, means that each person has the right to live without undue government interference in their life, and that it is not the responsibility of the government to take care of us and to provide for us, that it's not the responsibility of the government to shape and change morality and thought forms, but it is the responsibility of the government to protect us from criminals in terms of internal enemies and to protect us from external enemies. And it is the role of government to protect the divine institutions, personal responsibility, which includes private ownership of property, uh, marriage, which is between one man and one woman, family, and the institution of government itself. And, Father, we pray that uh, this nation would come to understand in their reflection that there is something more than simply the pursuit of temporal pleasure or temporal happiness but that the real, real happiness comes as a result of a spiritual relationship with you, and that can only be had because of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from that relationship, there is no real freedom, and there can be no capacity for freedom. And this is one of the reasons we find our nation in the state that is in, both internally and in terms of the internal fragmentation of the culture and externally in terms of the enemies that we face and the inability of those in positions of leadership to be willing to clearly identify and state uh, what that enemy is and what the problem is. Father, we pray ultimately for us as believers that we might be able to evaluate that which goes on around us from the divine viewpoint of your eternal word. Because only in your word do we have eternal objective absolutes that give us stability and certainty in the midst of the shifting circumstances of life. And we have this because, ultimately because you have loved us in such a way that you gave your son to die on the cross for us. And by virtue of his death and by virtue of the payment of his, of, for our sin, we have eternal life and we have true freedom from the tyranny of, of arrogance and sin. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight, as we reflect upon the heritage that we have in our nation, that we might be uh, have a greater appreciation, greater capacity for what we have 
and what you have provided for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tomorrow is the 4th of July, and I thought it would be a good thing to read the Declaration of Independence. It's not often that people hear the Declaration of Independence or read the Declaration of Independence. And there are a few other things that were written by founding fathers that I think are appropriate. And it might be a good thing if you're sitting around with friends and family tomorrow having a nice brew over a steak or hamburger or hot dogs to get out the Declaration of Independence and read it and generate some conversation about just what freedom is. That is, unless you have friends and family that are going to get into a brouhaha because they don't understand what freedom is. Sad that we have to say that. The Declaration of Independence in Congress, July the 4th, 1776. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to that separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Just a comment. The assumption is that there are absolute cross-cultural universal absolutes called truth, that they are self-evident to all men and that they come from a creator God who creates us. And all of those propositions are basically being denied by the ed- most educational institutions in this, school, in, this, uh, in this country, by many, in, most in the news media and by numerous other uh, groups, they are in complete rejection and suppression of truth. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That clause defines the previous statement of created equal. How are they, why, in what way are they created equal? They are created equal in that they all have the same inalienable rights. That's where the equality is, not that they have the same abilities, the same talents, the same potential. It's that they all have the same legal rights, that none is better or worse than another by virtue of their birth, their genealogy, their heritage that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now, that's an enlightenment truth. Government doesn't receive its power from the people. It receives its power from God. God is the one who institutes government, raises up government. So that shows how Enlightenment thinking uh, influenced this document, as well as terms like laws of nature and nature's God. Uh, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate the governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter the, the former systems of government. 
The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. Notice the recognition of Lex Rex, what had been uh, noted earlier in England, that the law is king, not the king. And the king is subject to the same laws as the people. Law rules. We believe in a system where law reflects absolutes and absolutes apply to everyone. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he is utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly, proposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He's obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. See, they had a problem with bureaucrats then as well as now. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of legislators. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial, from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, 
we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, too, have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them, as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace friends. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And many of those who signed the Constitution uh, lost their fortune. Some lost their lives, and they did not lose their honor because they were men of integrity who were willing to take a stand and to do what was right, no matter what the consequences were. When the Declaration of Independence was first voted upon and passed by the uh, Continental Congress, copies were sent to the newspapers, but the, the way they expected it to be disseminated the most was that they sent, they sent copies to every pastor in the colonies to be read from the pulpits of the churches so that there the people would hear what they had done in Philadelphia. There was never in their minds this modern secularist wall of separation that the that modern 20th century judiciary judicial tyrants have imposed upon uh, the church trying to straitjacket pastors and churches from speaking out in favor of or against political candidates or political positions this is something that has come to uh, interesting head in recent Months here uh, in Houston, there was a pastor of a church over in the southeastern part of town who got in the pulpit and endorsed a candidate for a political office. And one of the um, uh, one of the groups that runs around the country trying to silence Christians uh, sent a threatening letter to him and uh, telling him that this violated their tax exempt status and that if uh, because of this, he was going to, uh, the, the, this organization, which I th- think is the, the Alliance for the uh, Protection of the Separation of Church and State, that they were going to file a complaint with the IRS. They did file a complaint with the IRS. In May, the first week of May, a group of pastors called the Houston Area Pastors Council met at a church in the southeast part of town, uh, and I was uh, at that particular meeting. And at that meeting, they uh, had called a press conference. And they called a press conference because this Council for the Protection of the Separation of Church and State, which is just a cover, uh, cover organization to intimidate Christians and to try to keep uh, the Bible or anybody who is a Christian from utilizing their Christian belief system to... Um, evaluate or critique what's going on in the culture, 
Anyway, this organization is also a nonprofit 501c3 organization. So at the press conference, what we did was we said, well, since you're using your 501c3 status illegally to intimidate pastors so that they can't use their uh, First Amendment right of free speech, we're going to file a complaint with the IRS that uh, you're violating your 501c3 status. And that's how we have to do it. We are in a battle today. And if we don't stand up and if pastors don't unite, and I've been pleased to watch this organization. This is the same organization, if you've been watching the news, that when this middle school principal in Friendswood brought the uh, Council on Air, uh, what is it, the CARE, I never can remember what that stands for, Council, Council on American, uh, Arab, Council on Air, Arab something relations. Um, Anyway, it's been demonstrated it's a front organization and that they've been, you know, money's been funneled through them to terrorist organizations. And you always see one of their guys trot out anytime something comes up where Muslims think that they've been offended. So this principle, because two boys, one a Muslim, one not, two boys were bullied by another boy. And they were smaller than the other boy. And this larger boy picked up a couple of these younger kids and turned them upside down in a trash can. I don't know about you, but things like that happen all the time when I was growing up. I mean, kids, boys are boys and kids are kids. So this principal, who happens to have a couple of Muslims in her extended family, decided that this was really an issue of uh, antagonism directed toward a Muslim. One kid was, one kid wasn't. So she used that as an excuse to bring care in to propagandize the students. Well, the Houston Area's Pastors Council, which is a part of a national group that is acting as a watchdog organization on things like this, uh, immediately was alerted about this, and they sent their representative over there, and they began to... uh, you know, raise the proper legal issues with the Friendswood School District. And it took about two weeks for that principal to, uh, she couldn't get fired because of tenure, but she got moved into a janitor's closet somewhere. Now HISD, in their wisdom, has picked her up to be the new principal of Pershing Junior High, Pershing Middle School now, over off of uh, Stelling. Isn't that right, Bruce? That's where, that's where Pershing is over there. So, we're in a battle today because people don't understand what freedom is anymore. And you have the freedom to say whatever you want to, I guess, unless you're a Christian. And then you have the freedom to go stand in a closet somewhere and keep your mouth shut. But pastors have always had the right, since the very beginning of this nation, to be the voice of conscience, the voice of truth, and to take political stands from the pulpit. The only, there are only two things, just for your knowledge, there are only two things that a 501c3 organization cannot do. Number one is the organization, that is West Houston Bible Church or Dean Bible Ministries, cannot officially endorse a candidate. But I can endorse anybody I want to, all I want to, as long as I want to. Because I'm an individual private citizen in this pulpit, I can say whatever I want to. And that has been held up even though it has been challenged recently in the courts in Texas, but it has always been a fundamental right of pastors in pulpits in the United States of America that they can say whatever they want to, stomp on anybody's toes they want to, and it doesn't matter how offended anybody gets, they can't sue me. That's what was challenged recently in the state courts of Texas, and um, uh, unfortunately all of the idiots that have been appointed to judicial positions up and down the line, except for the Supreme Court of Texas, thought that pastors should not have that right. And then it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court voted unanimously and overturned all of the lower court decisions. So we still have some people on the Supreme Court, at the Supreme Court level in Texas, that understand the law and are not into judicial tyranny. But pastors can speak their mind. They can clearly... uh, critique and evaluate what's going on in the culture and name names if they want to. The organization just can't officially take that position. The other thing that a 501c3 organization cannot do is to take an inordinate, and I forget what the percentage is, but uh, we certainly wouldn't do that uh, at any level, 
uh, is to take an inordinate amount of their budget to support a single piece of legislation. So you can't take like 20 or 30 percent of the church budget to support the passing of a or defeat of a particular piece of legislation. That's all. There has And see, the news media doesn't understand this, and you will constantly read, and there was an article published on abcnews.com last week that I sent them an email about, because they continue to promote the lie that pastors, it's wrong for a pastor to make, to, to make an endorsement. And yet this pastor in Houston, who endorsed this one particular candidate back in the uh, primary back in March, was when that did go to the uh, Internal Revenue Service and the IRS reviewed it, they said that he didn't do anything wrong. Pastors have every right to do, make statements like that. But we've been intimidated for too long by the liberal socialist left who doesn't want to hear about absolutes. So there's going to be a pastoral protest, I think it's the third or fourth Sunday in September, uh, that pastors in this country are being encouraged to get in the pulpit and endorse candidates. I don't know if I'll do that, but uh, we'll certainly endorse certain biblically correct positions. And there's always a few people. I was amazed a few, the last time we had a presidential election. I got in the, I had been teaching on a series related to um, the divine institutions and making it just about as clear as I possibly thought I could make it that there one candidate just was extremely out in left field and, you know, was for, for numerous positions that violated the divine institutions. And the other one, you know, while he wasn't at, his, at the very best, he at least wasn't as bad by half as the other one. Well, in the middle of doing that, about two weeks before the election, somebody in my church came to me on Sunday and said, guess what? There was a woman in your congregation who called into a political talk show the other day, a local one, and said that based on what her pastor had been teaching about what the Bible said were the, were the um, criterion for, for elected officials, that we should, Christians should be voting for John Kerry. So I don't know what happens between my mouth and your brain. <laughs> but there are some people who have things, that have their wires really crossed. And I just wonder if some people even hear the gospel right after that. That is, that, that still shakes me up. So. We celebrate our nation's birthday one more year hoping that we still have freedom in another year. But I thought it would be a nice and appropriate as we acknowledge and recognize the freedoms that we have. And it, it's important for Christians. I want to say this because this question comes up. Why should, if we believe in separation of church and state, why do, does a church, what is the reason that a church in America, I mean churches in Brazil don't, churches in Indonesia don't, churches in Australia don't, but why is it that a church in America Churches in America should honor military veterans on Veterans Day, those who have given their life for their service on Memorial Day. Why should we honor state holidays? I mean, we believe in separation of church and state, right? The reason we do is because in this nation, uniquely at its founding, the government recognized the freedom of every individual to choose on their own where how and if they would worship and what church they would associate with. And that is why we acknowledge as Christians these national holidays because we recognize that government has been instituted by God and we honor that and we recognize that this government that we have grown up under and this government in this these United States since uh, the establishment of the Constitution has given us the freedom to worship without government interference. And so it is a, an expression of our thankfulness and our gratitude for all of the blessings that we have, for the foresight and the wisdom 
of the founding fathers of this nation to establish such a government that would continue for this long and provide us with the freedoms that we have enjoyed. Now, there has been an erosion of those freedoms, and we are aware of potential loss of even more freedoms. But for now, we still have these freedoms and potentially the right to turn things around. But it's going to depend upon the people. But so far, as Francis Scott Key recognized in the battle that occurred uh, over, uh, what was it, Fort, uh, Fort McHenry, that even though the battle rages over whether or not we will continue to be a free country, the flag still proudly waves. So let's stand, and um, Alan's going to come up and lead us in the Star-Spangled Banner. We're a little spread out, so we might, when we stand up, we might kind of come together a little bit, so it'll sound a little better. But we'll sing the first verse and the last verse. We have been studying for the last several lessons the tabernacle, trying to understand where the focal point becomes the not just the earthly tabernacle, which is a shadow of the heavenly tabernacle, which is something we're going to have to think through. I mean, I'm not really sure what that is all about. There are questions about that that I, I'm still working through as we approach that study. But to understand this, we have to have a firm and solid foundation of what's going on in the Old Testament in terms of the Old Testament tabernacle that God revealed to Moses. And from what we learn in Hebrews, what Moses saw was a shadow image or a reflection of that heavenly, of that heavenly archetype. And so we've been looking at the tabernacle in terms of its total composition. And then at once we enter in through the gate, the one-way entry into the presence of God, we have begun a study of the different articles of furniture in the tabernacle. The first article of furniture we focused on has been the brazen altar. The brazen altar is a type or picture of the judgment of sin. 
It is a picture of substitutionary atonement at its very core, the fact that at, at the cross, Jesus Christ would bear the judgment for us of our sin. But as you go through the first chapters of Leviticus, there are five different uh, sacrifices that are outlined there. And so I put together just a summary chart for us. I'll probably expand this as we go through, but just to remind us of these five offerings, the burnt offering, the meal offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. The only offering of the four that was bloodless was the meal offering. And the meal offering was an offering to God of the finest of uh, meal. It could be just mixed with oil, uh, it could be baked, it could be fried, it could be uh, broiled, and it would be brought to the uh, brought to the altar, and there it would be consumed completely as a memorial to God's grace. It is called a meal offering or a tribute offering. What all of these have in common is the idea of sacrifice the blood sacri- the blood offerings that is burnt peace sin and guilt offering and they all have at their base a picture of substitutionary atonement the burnt offering is the foundational one and it is a picture of the complete payment for sin because the entire offering was consumed upon the altar and each in that the one who brings the sacrifice, puts his hand upon the animal, indicating a transfer or identification of sin, indicates the nature of that payment is that of substitution. The peace offering, which is a picture of our fellowship with God, it is a shared meal. Part was consumed upon the altar, and the rest is shared with others in the family, friends, the priests, And this was a celebration that the one bringing the offering now had peace with God. It is a picture of reconciliation. The last two offerings, the sin offering and guilt offering, both speak of forgiveness. The focal point of the sin offering is on purification for unintentional sin, whereas the focus of the guilt offering is purification for specific sin. They each have a slightly different orientation, but the focus there again is substitutionary atonement. So the first thing that happens, uh, the first place of action and activity inside the courtyard is the burnt offering. But something else would transpire at the beginning of each shift, as it were, as the priest would come in to... Uh, prepare the sacrifices and the work at the offering, the first thing that a priest would have to do would be to go to the second piece of furniture that is inside the courtyard, and that was the laver. The laver was made out of bronze, and it was filled with water, and the priest would come in and he would wash his hands and wash his feet before he could serve at the altar. So we need to take a look at the significance of the labor. This pictures Christ as the one who cleanses us from our sins. Now, the labor really isn't mentioned that much in Scripture. There are a few passages I'm going to mention here in Exodus. There it is briefly mentioned in terms of this uh, consecration of the priests in Leviticus chapter 8, and it's mentioned in terms of the architecture and the construction of the the temple, the Solomonic temple, and then some changes that were made to it a little later on, two verses in Kings, two or three verses in Kings, and that's it. It's not mentioned anywhere else. Now, but it's important to pay attention to what is going on here because the labor is designed to teach a crucial principle for the spiritual life. In Exodus 30, in Exodus 30, verses 17 through 20, we have the order from God for the construction of the labor. 
verse 17, God, the Lord, Yahweh, spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver. The Hebrew word is kior. You shall make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing. Now, bronze, as we saw earlier, uh, speaks of judgment. It withstands the fire of judgment, the brazen altar. It, it speaks of judgment here. And so something related to judgment takes place at the uh, labor in terms of the cleansing. It's got a base of bronze for washing. And you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. And you shall put water on it, uh, water in it. Now, the Hebrew word I want you to pay attention to in the original Hebrew text is that word for washing. The verb is rachatz, and it is a generic or broad-based term. It can refer to washing your hands, or it can refer to taking an entire bath. The Hebrew word itself does not distinguish between uh, partial washings and complete or total uh, washings. That comes, though, when you have the Septuagint. And the, the Septuagint, remember, is translated between approximately 200 B.C. and 100 B.C. It, it was trans, a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into, into Greek because the Jews in the exile, the Jews in, in the diaspora, had lost their facility with Hebrew, and so they needed to have the scriptures in the language that they were familiar with so that they could understand it. So the uh, rabbis decided to translate the Old Testament into Greek, and the story was that 70 rabbis in 70 days translated the uh, Pentateuch from Hebrew into Greek. That's why it's called the Septuagint, meaning related to 70, and it's often abbreviated with the Roman numeral LXX for 70. And so you'll often see that abbreviation in different, in different places. In the Septuagint, the rabbis who all understood the nuance of the Hebrew text did not translate rachatz with the same Greek word every time. They understood that in some passages it was a complete washing or bathing, and in other passages, it was only a partial washing, like the washing of hands or the washing of feet. So when they translated the Hebrew into Greek, they distinguished between these two types of washing. This is very important to understand because of how the Lord Jesus Christ is going to use this uh, later on. In Exodus 30, verse 19, we read, Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. And there the Greek word is nipto. Nipto is the word that simply refers to a partial washing, just the washing of hands, washing of feet. In fact, the root is used to, do, to uh, describe the labor itself. When they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Notice the penalty, failure to, to wash their hands and their feet, failure to have this partial cleansing every time they entered into the uh, service in the tabernacle would result in the death penalty. God is really making a point here that it's these guys have to wash their feet and their hands every time they come in. They walk through the gate, they wash their hands, they wash their feet before they can start cutting up the animals to put them on the altar. Uh, I'm, they, before they go into the tent of meeting, before they do anything, the first thing they have to do is they have to wash their hands and wash their feet. It's a picture of confession of sin. You know how dull and boring and mechanical somebody might say. I've had people say that. Where every time you start Bible class, you always start with silent prayer. You say basically the same thing. We have confession of sin. It's so mechanical. Well, it's that's how you teach things. It's called pedagogy. You go through things over and over and over again because, pe because on the one hand, people need to be reminded of its importance. 
And on the other hand, there are new people coming in who haven't quite learned how significant this is. And in the Old Testament, the importance of experiential sanctification, because that's the key word that we're going to see here. It's, it, it, the Old Testament uses the word uh, to be set apart, to be sanctified, to be made holy. It's the, the Hebrew word kadash, which is the counterpart to the New Testament word hagiazo has this idea of experiential or ongoing sanctification, that before the priest can serve God, there has to be experientially set apart to serve God for that day. The fact that it had happened uh, the day before, the day before, or that they had been completely bathed at some time in the past uh, is, is another issue. Now, when you look at, at Exodus 30, verse 21, Goes, the text goes on to say, so they shall wash their hands, nipto, and their feet, so that they will not die. Repetition is the key to learning. And when the Holy Spirit repeats things, you have to pay attention. They shall wash their hands and their feet, so they will not die, and it shall be a perpetual statute for them. For Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. Moreover, he made, and then, then we skip to the next passage. That's all Exodus 30. That's all we have is those verses 17 to 21. The next mention of the labor is in verse 8, and it adds something new about its construction. What was it made from? Okay, it's made from bronze, but where did they get the bronze? Moreover, he made the labor of bronze with its base of bronze from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So it's made from mirrors. So when you would come up to the laver and you look through the clear water, what are you going to see? You're going to see a reflection of yourself. This is a function of the Word of God. I want you to hold your place here and turn into the New Testament with me to the uh, first chapter of James. First chapter of James. Now, the first chapter of James, all the way down through 2.13, it puts an emphasis on the application of the word. Don't be a hearer only, which means don't just come to Bible class, listen, take notes, and accumulate a lot of intellectual knowledge about the Bible. You have to have intellectual knowledge about the Bible before you can apply it. You know, that's the trouble today. People say, oh, well, you know, we know too much. If we only applied a tenth of what we know, just think of what great believers we will be. Well, we don't apply a tenth of what we know about any subject in life. The more we know, the more the totality of our knowledge, we only apply about maybe, you know, one-tenth of one percent at any given time. So the more the total knowledge, the more that the larger that one tenth of one percent is going to be. So you continue to learn and grow, and you will apply more. But people don't want to learn. I can't tell you how many times years ago I was in a church and I say, "Oh, we just know you just dump so much knowledge on us all that just like an information dump." Well, you just don't want to learn anything, do you? So James emphasized, he doesn't say don't be a hearer of the word. He says be a hearer and a doer. You know, add something to it. Don't just collect information, but apply it. And he gives an illustration. He says in verse 22, chapter 1, verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. See, the person who just comes and listens collects a lot of information about the Bible but doesn't really think about its application. Now, I remember years ago sitting next to somebody in, um, in Bible class, and they were taking notes, and just because of the way we were sitting in Bible class, my eye naturally fell on, on their notes, and I noticed that when they took notes, that if the point was expressed in an impersonal third-person sort of construction, they converted it into a first-person construction I need to do this. And every point that was given, they converted that into, I need to do this, if that was the way it would, if it was make sense that way. And I thought, boy, that is, that, that really makes it personal, doesn't it? That's convicting. Let's move on. Um, 
Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. When you only listen to the word and you're not thinking in terms of how does, how does that impact or how should that change the way I think, the way I relate to people, the way I respond to situations, how is that going to change me fundamentally? Then you're, 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 you're in self-deception. You're just getting information and you're not thinking in terms of this information is designed to change me. And then James gives an illustration. In fact, what's interesting is I was talking to a pastor just this morning. We meet weekly, and he was telling me, he says, you ever heard anybody interpret James this way? And he related the fact that he had somebody in his congregation come up and say, well, a hearer is just somebody who, who shows up at Bible class. A doer is a person who really understands what it says. You know, application is not related. I thought, boy, that sounds like the objector over in James chapter 2. I said, have you, maybe you ought to respond by saying, what do you do with the next verse? The next verse says, for explanation. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not an applier of the word, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. So what James is saying here is you wake up in the morning, and you go in to the bathroom, and you look in the mirror, and you've got bedhead, and you know your hair's going in 40 different directions, and you... You need a shave. You got that stubble starting to show up, and see that's the value. As as we look a little fuzzier around the edges as we get older, and our eyesight goes, I can't tell. I look in the mirror. I can't tell if I've shaved or not for four days. And that's a trouble. I had a beard for so many years when I didn't need to shave. I look in the mirror. I don't notice that I haven't shaved, and sometimes I'll I'll get somewhere. I did this the other day at Bible class. I said, I ain't shaved today. I don't look in the mirror and see myself anymore. So this is a person who looks in the mirror and says, well, you need to shave. Your hair is crazy. Okay. Now what do you do? You know, you'll fix breakfast, have a cup of coffee, and forget what you looked at. Well, that's, that's the person who is a hearer and not an applier, not a doer. The person who's a hearer and a doer responds to that. You look in the mirror and say, ah, oh, I need to comb my hair. I look crazy. I need to, uh, you know, if you're a lady, you need to put some makeup on. I need to shave. Whatever it is, you, you recognize that, that as you see truth in the mirror, that truth tells you that you need to change something about yourself. The Word of God reflects reality, and so we see that which needs to conform to truth. And so when, when you come to the laver, what is reflected in the mirror of the laver is the sin of the individual. He sees himself as he is. And so there's a recognition there that, that we need to look at ourselves, look at the reflection of ourselves to see if there's sin there. And if there's sin there, we need to confess it. That's the point of application. So it's made out of a mirror because we need to look and examine our lives and to see if there is sin there, and if there is, we need to confess it. Now, the next time we have the labor mentioned is in Exodus chapter 40. This is at the consecration of the priest when he first enters into service. And the labor is mentioned and says, you shall, verse 7 of chapter 40, you shall set the labor between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and wash them with water. But it's, when the rabbis translate this into the Septuagint, they didn't translate it with nipto. They translated it with luo. This is the initial bathing, complete washing of the of the priest, he was bathed from head to toe. This is his. This is equivalent to positional sanctification. Now, what does that mean? Those are big words. It means that our position before God is completely 
sanctified. God looks at us as the believer as being, as our position, and for the believer in the church age, our position in Christ is that we are completely cleansed of all sin. We are completely forgiven positionally. But this doesn't have to do with the day-to-day experience of our Christian life. And that's the point of comparison, that at the beginning of Aaron's ministry, he's positionally cleansed. They are bathed from head to toe, and then they would put on their sanctified, set-apart garments, and they were anointed and consecrated so that they could serve as priests. Now, there are other things that happened as well related to different sacrifices and offerings, and when we get into our study of the priesthood, we will, we will look at those. But for now, what I want to do is look in the last four minutes. Tomorrow's a holiday. We'll take ten minutes. And we're going to look at how Jesus picks up on this terminology in John 13. This is as they come together for the... Um, celebrate the Passover the night before the Lord goes to the cross. He is with the disciples in the upper room. Jesus took the position of being the servant. The servant would come to wash the feet of the guests that would come in, but he's taking this uh, to a new level, and he's going to use this to teach a principle. So turn with me, if you will, to the 13th chapter of John. And I'm just going to make a couple of really quick points here because it's fairly obvious. And then we'll see how all of this connects. John 13. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Judas is an unbeliever. He's not just having the devil put ideas into him. That would be demon, just demon influence. But later on it says that the devil uh, goes into him. Acerchomai, uh, the same word used for demon possession. So he's an unbeliever. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he'd come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. So now, after supper, he is going to go through this process of washing their feet. And he poured water into a basin, and the word for basin there is related to, to nipto, and began to wash the disciples' feet. So he goes from Matthew to Thaddeus to James and each one sits there and says, well, this is interesting, and uh, watching Jesus wash their feet. And he would wash their feet, wipe them off with the, with the towel that he had, and then he comes to Peter. And Peter's been watching this, and Peter, Peter's not so sure that the Lord, remember, Peter's the one who realizes Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's not so sure this is the right thing for the Lord to be doing. So in Peter's wealth of human viewpoint, He says, Lord, are you washing my feet? Or we would put it, Lord, why are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing you don't understand now. I'm picturing something. I'm depicting something in action, but you don't understand it right now, but you will later. But right now you're not going to understand the full import of this. Verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I'm not going to let you do this. You, you may be having a uh, teaching point here and an analogy, but I'm not going to let you do it. So Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash you, nipto, all these so far, that's the only word used is nipto, partial washing. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, that word part, in English, we tend to think of it like an actor has a part in a play. He has a role in the play. And too often, that's the idea that we get. The Greek word here, though, is the word miros. Miros is a word used in legal literature, usually wills and testaments, last wills and testaments, to indicate the portion of the inheritance that's designated to a person. When the prodigal son comes to his father and says, Hey, Dad, I want to go live my life. I want to leave here. I want to go have fun. Give me my, my share of the inheritance. 
The word that he uses there is meros. It's the same word that's used here. Part is a bad translation. Jesus is saying, if I don't wash with you, you have no share of inheritance with me. That's a powerful statement. But it goes past Peter. Peter says, oh, or, or, excuse me, it, it impacts Peter. Peter says, Lord, well, then don't just wash my feet, but wash my hands and my head. Give me a bath. Verse 10, so he goes from one end of the spectrum to the other. And then Jesus said to him, he who is bathed, luo. That's that word that described the complete washing of the high priest at the beginning of his service. But it only happened once at the beginning. Jesus says, he who is bathed, luo, needs only to wash his feet, nipto, but is completely clean. That implies that he is only partially clean prior to the partial washing. And the issue here is cleansing, and the noun here is katharos, related to the verb katharizo. We say First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, katharizo. That's that idea. The, the important thing in First John some years ago, there was controversy, and this comes up every now and then. Do we really need to confess our sins? And some of you remember there's a lot of discussion a few years ago about this. And, and everybody focuses on, well, see, it seems like confession is legalistic. I've heard that many times. Why don't you confess your sin? They miss the point. The emphasis in 1 John 1, 9 isn't on confessing. The issue is cleansing. What do you do with post-salvation sin? If you don't need to be cleansed of it, then does it have any impact on your relationship with God? Trust me, in any relationship you have, whether it's marriage, whether it's a parental relationship, whether you're the child or the parent, uh, a work relationship, if you do something that offends the other person in the relationship, then something has to be done to clear that up before harmony is restored. And that's just the way life is. That's the same thing with God. To think that, oh, I can go out and I can, I can sin the seven deadly sins or whatever and I don't have to confess them or do anything, just trust that God's going to automatically forgive me because Jesus died for me is, is a recipe for licentiousness. Much more so than people think that 1 John 1 9, just confess your sin and it's okay, is a recipe for licentiousness. Well, using 1 John 1 9 means every now and then at least you have to think about whether there's any sin in your life. I mean, if you don't have to confess your sin, you're just automatically forgiven because you're trusting God to automatically do it. You never have to think about the sin, so, well, you can really make hay while the sun shines, so to speak. He was bathed, he's only to wash his feet but is completely clean. And you, he says to Peter, are clean. And actually, it's an, and not just you to Peter, it's a y'all there. It's a plural. Y'all are clean, meaning all of the disciples. Y'all are clean, but not all of you. In other words, there's one of you who isn't positionally cleansed, i.e., there's one of you that's not saved. But the rest of y'all are all completely clean and uh, positionally saved. And then John explains what he meant by this in verse 11. He says, for he knew who would betray him. So he's speaking about Judas. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. That is, you are not all uh, positionally cleansed or saved. Verse 11. And then verse 12. So when he washed your feet, taken his garment, sat down again, he then says, you know what I have done to you. You call me teacher and Lord. You say, well, for so I am. I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. And so this is a picture of not only for divine forgiveness, but also forgiveness uh, one to another. And that's what he's going to end up teaching after he identifies the betrayer and kicks Judas out between verses 18 and 30. Then he gives the new commandment that we are to love one another as he has loved us. That relates to the grace orientation of forgiving one another, uh, which is what he has been illustrated. Is he's illustrating divine forgiveness. So when Jesus washes partially nipto and says, you are all already bathed fully, luo, 
So you are all clean. He is using the same terminology and drawing a connection, a continuity between the Old Testament priesthood service and the New Testament priesthood service. And that there's an underlying principle, and that is for a priest to serve God, he has to be in sanctified relationship. When we sin, that experiential sanctification is broken. We become, uh, in terms of sanctification, we become unclean. But when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we can then continue in our Christian growth and Christian service. And so the the laver is a picture and reminder of the fact that the believer needs to be confessing sin and needs to have ongoing cleansing in order to be able to serve God. And it is a daily and significant thing that the believer needs to keep close watch on his sins. With that, we finish the outer courtyard. And next time, we'll come back and look at what is going on inside the Holy of Holies. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this, study these things, see the importance of ongoing cleansing, ongoing sanctification as we are being set apart daily to to your service. This is the focal point of the Christian life, Christian growth in phase two. Father, we pray that also for our nation, once again, we pray while we are in war against terrorism, both in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, as well as the threats from Iran, the threats of al-Qaeda around the globe. Father, we pray that you would give our president wisdom. We pray that you would give congressional leaders and uh, judicial leaders wisdom in the decisions that they make, recognizing their responsibility to protect and defend this nation and this constitution and not to protect and defend their own positions, their own power, and their own prestige. Father, we pray that you would give, uh, continue to give this nation opportunities to have the freedom to send out missionaries and to, uh, and our support for Israel as well, especially in support of missionaries with the economic uh, crises that are, crisis that's upon the nation with the drop in the dollar, the increase in costs of fuel. We realize that those who are on the mission field are seeing their uh, dollar value shrink dramatically. And we pray that you will just put on the minds of many believers the need to pray for them, the need to support them, and the need to uh, pay attention to uh, support the financial support of our missionaries at this particular time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.